few weeks at things that he teaches. Now, today's lesson, if you will, from Jesus doesn't have to do with anything about love per se, but I want to use that as an example of what I'm about to say. As I tell you, the scriptures tell us that we're to love one another as we love ourselves. And as I tell you, for me, that's a high bar because I love myself so much, I take me wherever I go. I laugh at all my jokes. And when I think something is right, I think it's right. Now, most of you know that I have taken a couple of doctrinal positions that is somewhat contrary to the current evangelical views, although not inconsistent with historical Christianity. Today, while it's not a doctrine per se, it is something that I depart and don't think it's talking about, and it has been so much a part of evangelical Christianity that when I tell you this, you'll be surprised, and so I'm going to allow you to be shocked for a while and to think about it, and we can discuss it later. There are times when I have to come up with these different opinions, if you will, uh, which is, again, not only contrary to current evangelical thinking, but even in our Bibles. So if you have your Bible and you're looking at Matthew chapter 18, starting with verse 15, just above that, at least in my Bible, there's a big, bold three words. Now, Matthew did write, okay, I'm going to talk about disciple discipline and prayer. The translators of Matthew said, well, I'm going to help you because you may not know where these parts are. So if you quickly flip through and you see the bold print, you go, okay, that's what I want to read about. And so it helps you. However, I don't believe they're always right. While the Holy Spirit dictated, if you will, Matthew, what we needed to see in the Scriptures, the translators and those who are trying to help us out aren't necessarily guided by the Holy Spirit. So when you see it says discipline and prayer, I don't think it's talking about prayer. I'll show you why I don't think so. And notice again, I said I don't think so. It allows me to, to hear your arguments to say, maybe I'm wrong. But as I told you, I tend to be, when I become confident of something, I'm confident of it. So, in Matthew 18, verse 15, um, these, these scriptures are some of the scriptures that are frequently quoted either verbatim or at least the address in many bylaws of churches. Dealing with church discipline, because this is the model of how to deal with church discipline. So it says, if your brother sins, okay, here's the key. It's got to be your brother, which means it's not the world. And it's talk about sinning. It's not talking about doing things you don't agree with. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Now, we already don't do this. 
if, I'm going to think of a name. If Mortimer, we don't have a Mortimer here. If Mortimer sins, what is it that we do? We go and tell everybody else Mortimer sinned. Can you believe that Mortimer did that? How dare Mortimer do that? But that's not what the scripture says. The scripture says, if Mortimer sins, you go to Mortimer. You don't go to everybody else and decide, okay, whatever. So the first step in correcting a brother who is sinning is to go to him individually and privately. You don't go pray for me as I go to Mortimer because I got to deal. No, you go to Mortimer privately. You don't develop a prayer group. Because that ain't private. It's like, oftentimes our prayer requests aren't prayer requests. They're a way to do gossip. Well, it wasn't gossip. I was asking the church to pray for them. Well, then you could have said, I have an unspoken request. Church doesn't need to know the baggage. So you go to your brother in private. Step one, private brother. That's the extent of it. And if you convince your brother to stop sinning, you've won him. He should be appreciative of it. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Again, this is kind of the scriptural uh, burden of proof. It's not only my opinion that you're sinning, my brother, but it's these two or three other witnesses who agree with me that your life is not consistent with the gospel. You need to change. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Notice it's after the third attempt. You make two attempts, the third attempt. Now you tell the church, Mortimer is sinning. We need to do something about this. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What the Scriptures is teaching is, the Jews used to think that Gentiles and tax collectors were worse than worse. They were terrible sinners. You don't even want to be associated with them because their sin may rub off on you. So Jesus is saying, if your brother refuses to listen even to the church, then you're to, in essence, to use a word that Baptists tend not to use, he's considered like excommunicated. Doesn't mean if you're... If you're no longer a member of First Baptist Church, you're going to hell. It means we're not going to deal with you anymore. We've turned our backs on you. Now, in case you think that that's tough, Paul wrote the very same thing to the church at Corinth. There was a young man who was having an affair with his father's wife, and the church tolerated it. And Paul said, that's something even the Gentiles don't do. You need to, if you will, you need to treat him as a sinner and a tax collector. And when the church did that, we find in the following letter of Paul that he repented and came back. 
You see, the whole point of discipline isn't to punish you, but to get you to see the error of your way and to return to Jesus. It's not for punishment for punishment's sake. It's to get you to repent. And then Jesus says something that he said before. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now everybody I've ever heard about this who tried to develop doctrine and, and approaches to life, reverse the wording. They always say, whatever you bind on earth is going to be bound in heaven. That is not what Jesus said. He said, whatever is bound in heaven shall be bound on earth. It's in essence like when Jesus taught us to pray, and he said, Lord, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, earth doesn't bind heaven. Heaven binds earth. And so Jesus is saying, when you make this decision, it's already been made in heaven. This person has been either bound or loosened because it's a heavenly command, not an earthly obligation. And then now he's going to say something where everybody thinks he's talking about prayer. But notice, again, the context is discipline. And then again, again, I say to you, He's saying, again, I say to you, which means to me, the clear language means he's still talking about discipline. He's not changed the topic. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. He is saying, when you make the decision as a church to determine that this brother has sinned to the point that he will not listen to the church. That God will do what you ask. It's not, oh, if I, and which is the current thing, you can hear all kinds of TV people and all kinds of things that will talk about. If two or three of us agree on something, God's got to do it. Says who? I'm not God. God is not bound to determine and do what I tell him to do. I do what he tells me to do. And it doesn't matter if we have a majority. I'll give you an example. There were 12 spies that were sent out to look at the promised land. The majority said, oh, we shouldn't go. There were two, the minority said, yeah, we should because God gave it to us. The minority was correct, not the majority. God is not bound by votes. God is sovereign. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. When you come as a church to make decisions like this, Jesus is present just as he is in our congregation when we've gathered together in his name. It has nothing to do with prayer. It has everything to do with being a church. So, I know I'm outside what most people say. Oh, if we just, we just 
can name it and claim it, and we just get a couple of people to speak it out, it's going to happen. And I frankly don't see that in the scriptures. Now I'm willing to be wrong. If somehow me and one other person can agree to get God to do something, yeah, I'm for it. Because there's all kinds of times I like God to do what I want him to do. But my reading of the scriptures say that he's God. And I'm his child. Now he's going to talk, Jesus is going to talk on a different subject because the subject came up. He's now no longer talking about church discipline because Peter is going to ask him a question. So I agree with the little black wording that says forgiveness. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Now notice, this at least is a follow-up question. Because the brother has sinned. But the problem is, sin is against God. You may do something to harm me, to hurt me. Sin is against God. As David said, against you only and only you have I sinned. Even though he took Uriah's wife even though he had him murdered, even though he lied about it, even though he did a whole lot of terrible things, it was God that he sinned against. But Peter goes, okay, Jesus, we've dealt with this one, and he comes back. How often should I forgive him? And I'm sure Peter's thinking, I'm going to show how spiritual I am. I'm going to say up to seven times because, you know, after all, Peter probably has the same attitude I do. That is, hurt me once, shame on you. Hurt me twice, shame on me. I'm not giving you the second opportunity. But that ain't scriptural. So Peter goes, okay, so, so my brother, he's going to sin against me, harm me. So is it okay if I do it? Some, so the eighth time, that's it. Boom. You're done. And Jesus does what Jesus does. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. I want you to square root the whole thing. I want you to, to be so forgiving of your brother that you don't actually count the times. Forgiveness is not keeping score. So let's face it, let's say Jesus was actually using an actual number then we would be like husband and wife. Forgive me, I forgive you, that's one. Forgive me, I forgive you, that's two. Forgive me, I forgive you, that's three. And we keep numbering. That's not forgiveness. That's keeping score. So that Peter and you and me might get what Jesus is talking about. He says, he's going to tell him a parable. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. Notice his slaves. He owns them. It's not his workers. It's not his employees. It's his slaves. 
And when he had begun to settle them, one who had owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now reread that, and we have no clue what a talent is. And I can tell you whatever. In that particular economy, what we're talking about is about $12 million then. If you were to take hold of inflation, all that, we're probably talking billions. But let's go back to $12 million, let's say. That he owes the king $12 million in a society that you were, if you were an average worker, you made a denarii a day. First, it's incredible that the king allowed this slave to be that indebted, which shows you how rich the king is. That this slave owes him at that time in life $12 million or so. But since he did not have the means to repay, and very few people do, you generally have to be a king to have that kind of money. His Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife, and children, and all that he had, and repayment to be made, which means that if he sold everything, he would come up really, 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 really short. The debt versus what this is going to repay is minimal. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. Liar. There's no way that this guy is going to be able to repay $12 million. In our society where we make more money, let's face it, we're not going to make $12 million. But he's saying, just have patience, and I'll, and I'll do it. Because let's face it, the prospect of he and his wife and his kids going to prison was not a good thought. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. You see how merciful this king is? That this person is so indebted and there is no prospect of him ever repaying or gives him. Now notice Jesus is talking about that the kingdom and what it's like, which means our father, the king, is so rich that we can get really indebted to him. And he is so filled with compassion and mercy that he can forgive us all our debts, all the sins that we've committed against him. So you would think that that slave, after having been forgiven a tremendous amount of money, and you would think us, after having been given, forgiven a tremendous indebtedness of sin, that it would change us. Verse 28. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. A hundred denarii is basically a hundred days wages. It's something that you could pay back. It's not an excessive, it's a big debt, but it's not an excessive debt. It's something that could be accomplished. 
But that slave went out and found the one of his fellow slaves and owed him honor and honor. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. Not only does he try to get the money, but he does so forcibly. He's choking the guy. He's not just writing a strongly worded letter from his lawyer. He's physically abusing the person to say, pay me back. So his fellow slaves fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. He said the very same thing that the first slave did, but yet this slave could possibly repay. The other slave, there was no repayment possible. But he was unwilling and went and threw him into prison until he should pay back what was owed. Now, even in our modern society, when we put somebody in prison and they make license plates or whatever they do, they pay them something for that. And when they get out of prison, they give them some money. But you make a whole lot more money if you're not in prison. If this guy really wanted to be paid back, he should have let the guy stay out of prison. But you see how hate works. That it even corrupts your own best interests. So he threw him into prison. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported it to their Lord, all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave. You evil person. It's not about you indebted slave. It's you wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? The question is very striking. You're my slave. He's my slave. I forgave you. You two are in the same boat. You're both slaves. You should have had more mercy on each other than me as king on you. And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over, not to the prison, but to the torturers, until he should repay all that was owed him. 